Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. One of the first programs that the Gray Center hosted in 2017 was co-hosted by another program at the law school, the Center for the Prote- Protection of Intellectual Property. The program was titled Perspectives on the PTAB, that is the Patent Trial and Appeals Board, the new role of the administrative state in the innovation economy. It was a fascinating set of presentations and papers on this intersection of intellectual property and the administrative state. We hosted this event in November of 2017, and later that month, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case titled Oil States Energy versus Greens Energy Group. They decided the case a few months later in April of 2018, and the case had dramatic ramifications for both administrative law and intellectual property. And so just to discuss the PTAB, the case, and the future of the administration of intellectual property, it's my pleasure to be joined by my friend and colleague, Adam Mossoff, a professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, and the co-founder and former director of the Center for Protection of Intellectual Property. Adam, welcome. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, We'll try to keep the names straight. It gets a little confusing sometimes. Luckily, it's just the two of us this time. Um, Adam, let's start at the very beginning, uh, not the beginning of intellectual property, that's a much longer (laughs) podcast, but just the beginning of the issue in this case, the PTAB, the Patent Trials and Appeals Board. What is the PTAB? What does it do? Where did it come from? So the PTAB was created by Congress in in 2011. It went into effect. It began uh, uh, its primary operations in 2012. Uh, It was creating a piece of legislation called the American Vents Act of 2011 that was enacted by Congress. And as he said, it's called the Pat. It stands for the Patent Trial and Appeals Board and uh, or Appeal Board. And uh, it's a it's an administrative tribunal. It's a kind of a tip. It's it reflects a lot of the features and characteristics that we have seen in the in, in, in the adjudicative processes and other administrative agencies. So um, <clears throat> they, uh, they there is administrative judges. Um, they're not called administrative law judges. They're called administrative patent judges um, because why not add another acronym to the alphabet soup of acronyms that we have? <laughs> why uh, not? Yes. Yeah, so instead of ALJs, we have APJs. Um, but uh, they uh, but it receives petitions uh, that uh, on uh, the issues of whether patents are valid or not. Um, and so uh, the sole function of the PTAB, and it has several different. Uh, uh, review programs or, or, or hearings that it, it, it holds. Um, <clears throat> on, but its sole job is to, de- is to determine whether it should cancel a patent that had been previously issued by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Um, and so the, uh, uh, it's an instance where the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is now issuing patents, and now it is hearing uh, and, it rec- and, and uh, it receives thousands of petitions every year now uh, uh, to cancel the patents that it had previously issued. Um, and that there's several different review programs. There's post-grant review. There's inter-parties review. Um, there's uh, there's re uh, there's re-examin- ex-party re-examination. Um, but uh, and then there was a, a transitional covered business methods programs specific for just business method patents, but that actually had a sunset provision and it actually sunsetted um, last week, although there was the last minute effort, uh, lobbying effort 
um, by uh, by uh, big tech and several other um, uh, 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 commercial interests to try to uh, uh, con continue the program. But it, that particular program sunsetted. But it, the same types of arguments that could be made in the CBM program could be made in the other programs. That's one reason why it was allowed to sunset. Now, our audience tends to know a lot about administrative law, but I don't assume they know a lot about intellectual property or even patents specifically. Yeah. So why don't we go a little bit further into the background, um, just in real sort of general terms for, say, an educated layman, what's a patent and where does it come from? I mean, we're both like the, the origins of the, the, the notion of a patent and then mm -hmm. just in practice in the United States now, um, yeah. what is a patent? And how do you get one? Excellent. So it's a yeah, it's a great question, um, and it kind of it, it's it's a history that kind of uh, tracks both the history of not just uh, property rights and inventions, but also property rights and land. So um, the term patent um, uh, derives from a legal mechanism at, um, at common law, uh, where the crown uh, 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 bequeathed various privileges and um, and powers to subjects, and it did so through a device known as a letters patent an open letter. So you actually got a, a document, a letter from the crown with the crown seal that says, I can run a, min, a mill or I can run a tavern or I can, or I can run a shop in this particular commercial district. Um, you know, well, an original property rights in land were issued as, as letters patent to dukes and things of this sort. Um, and so when the a crown and then started issuing special monopoly privileges, um, <clears throat> to try to further kind of economic development. And then of course also issued them to court favorites. Um, and, and so the parliament enacted in 1624, the statute of the monopolies to try to restrain and restrict the power of the crown to issue these letters patent um, <clears throat> for, uh, uh, for these monopoly grants to uh, people to create and uh, further the commercial development of the realm. And over a period of the next 150 years up through the late uh, 18th century, um, you get the evolution from grant of royal privilege into property right that's issued to an inventor of a novel invention, a, a new invention, because that wasn't even a requirement under the original grants. The crown, the crown didn't care about whether it was new or not. It was just a monopoly grant from the crown. Um, and it fell within the scope of the common law courts, and it fell within the scope of the statutory powers at that point of parliament, and then shifted to the United States. Um, and, uh, and so a patent is a property right in a new useful invention. And in order to obtain that, you go through a, an examination process at the patent office. You file a patent application. Um, it's called pro patent prosecution, which sounds a little odd because we usually think of prosecution in a criminal context, but you are pursuing a patent. So, and, um, uh, and, um, and the examiner examines and makes sure that this is a new invention that meets the various statutory requirements for having to be a valid property right. It's a new invention. It's useful. It's uh, non-obvious. Uh, um, and also very importantly that you properly disclose it in the invention um, because this is part and parcel of what patents provide for is the disclosure of the invention so that others can read it and they can build new inventions off of it or they know, okay, it serves the function like a title recording office. I know who to go to if I want to license and use this invention. Um, and so, and that's how patents generally have functioned in this country. Uh, the United States actually took a very unique approach to patents. We really took it very seriously that these were property rights, um, uh, which was which was unusual compared to England and other countries that continued that where they continued to still have the vestiges of a royal privilege. Um, and and 
Um, it's it's notable, a couple other just quick notable points about the patent system. So, of course, you know, it's in our constitution. It's, it's one of the powers that's authorized in Congress in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 to enact uh, patents and copyright statutes. Um, it's the only place in the entire constitution proper of 1787 where the word right is even used um, before the before the Bill of Rights. And um, uh, and it was recognized as a really important power of Congress. And, uh, and so, in fact, some of the very first legislation that Congress enacted in 1790, in the first Congress, was the Patent Act of 1790 and the Copyright Act of 1790, because they understood that these were key property rights that would drive what became a flourishing innovation economy in the United States in the 19th century. Yeah, the exact constitutional text, I just got it out, is, is Congress has the power, quote, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoverings. Now, Adam, didn't President Lincoln later have sort of a, a, a nice saying about the nature of intellectual property in, in America and our constitutional government? Oh, yeah. So uh, President Abraham Lincoln had this beautiful and eloquent uh, statement about the U.S. patent system that it, quote, added the fuel of interest to the fire of genius, end quote. And by the way, President Lincoln knew of which he spoke because to this day, he's the only U.S. president that ever had a patent actually issued to him for an invention that he, uh, that he uh, came up with, uh, the patent issued to him in 1848 before he be, became president. That's rem- I actually didn't know. That's remarkable. I, you'd almost think that maybe Dr- President Washington would have gotten a patent given he was such a businessman and, and had all the operations on his, on, uh, or Jefferson too, for that matter. That's fascinating. Yeah, so oh. President, President Washington actually invested in, in inventors. Um, he, so he was kind of an early example of, of an angel investor. He <laughs> a lot of steamboat inventors. Um, but he was actually an active participant in the patent system insofar as even when he was president, he licensed um, patents. So um, there, his mill in, in uh, Virginia, um, uh, where, he makes, where he made his beer, he used a process that was patented. And, he, and when he was president, he had got a license to use the patent. Uh, which speaks very uh, uh, eloquently also about the respect for patents and the way in which patents were viewed as property rights. Because if Lincoln had just taken the patent, I mean, if President Washington had just taken the patent and used it, I mean, no one would have challenged him on it at the yeah. time. I mean, it was President Washington, the father of our country. But you know, he actually entered a license agreement with him. And Jefferson wouldn't have gotten patents because Jefferson, unfortunately, was very, at the end, uh, by later in his life, he was very critical and skeptical of patents, unfortunately, despite being huh. a and uh, himself. Well, so um, how did the federal government, as, as Lincoln put it, you know, add fuel to the fire of genius? I mean, how did they administer the patent system um, until more modern times? Just briefly. Oh, very briefly. It's very great. Another great question, because the uh, the patent office is actually the very first agency created in the federal government uh, in the sense of a federal agency that had employees and and un, and created various regulations that governed their operations as an agency in, in examining and issuing patents. Um, and, uh, and that was largely its job. Um, uh, it was simply to do this uh, was, um, well, they first issued patents um, and then the examination system as we now have, it was created by federal statute in 1836. Um, and that was largely what it did for most of the rest of the 19th century and in most of the 20th centuries that just it received patent applications it examined them and uh, for the ones that it deemed met the statutory requirements, it issued them as, as patents, uh, which were in, are preparates that then go into effect for 20 years. And then, um, uh, and then it rejected other applications. And uh, it began to do uh, 
uh, some minor review proceedings starting in, uh, in, in the 80s, but, um, but the PTAB is definitely a new institution. Yeah, and the last bit of prehistory before we get to the PTAB was this idea of, if I remember correctly, ex parte review, right? The idea that the, 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 the patent and trademark office itself or something in the PTO could on its own motion reconsider whether a, a patent had been improperly granted. Is that, is that the right way to think of ex parte review? Yes. So uh, starting with legislation in the 1980s um, and with some minor modifications after the 1990s, there were some of these minor review programs that are kind of the predecessor to the PTAB, uh, but that where um, there could be some reconsideration on some very limited, narrow grounds of whether a patent had been properly issued, whether a mistake had been made by an examiner in issuing the patent, because people are not omniscient and people make mistakes are fallible. now, now, other than that, though, I suppose up until we get to PTAB, and we will get to PTAB in just a moment, we keep saying it and we'll maybe describe it again when we get to it. But until recently, if, if you were, say, a competitor or you feel, you feel like a, one of your competitors had received a patent that he shouldn't have received, I suppose then the, the way to challenge that was, was exclusively in court? Yes, yes. Um, in the same way that you would exclusively challenge any, any right as being illegitimate in court. I mean, and so these types of these types of challenges occur even in the context of real property. Um, so you can say, well, your grant is invalid or, you know, I mean, your conveyance instruments invalid or the will that created your property rights invalid. One of the defenses you have as someone who's sued uh, for a violation of someone's property rights and the same uh, defenses were immediately made available to defendants in litigation starting with in the 1790 Patent Act that any person accused of infringement could assert as an affirmative defense that the patent was invalid, that the underlying property right that was asserted as having been violated was not a valid property right. And therefore it, the, the lawsuit is, is not legitimate. And that has been, and everyone asserted always has always asserted it. So every lawsuit has consisted of, um, I'm not infringing by the defendant. And even if I am, your patent is invalid, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah, belt and suspenders. Yes. Uh, so, so let's talk about about the PTAB then specifically. We keep referring to this the Patent Trial and Appeals Board. It's a very, a very modern entity, right? I think it's it's what barely a decade old now, I suppose, or maybe maybe older than that. It's well, the, the America Invents Act is what created it, right? Two thousand eleven, yeah. So two thousand eleven, so. and and the primary program which it operates here, which is Interparties Review, began in twenty twelve. Right. Okay. So, so it's about eight years um, that it's been in existence. And, and so and inter-parties review is the thing that is now sort of supplanting traditional judicial challenge to a, a, a patent. And it's what is, was at, at issue in the case we're about to discuss, oil services, right? So, so what, why was, or let me try this again, what is inter-parties review and why was it created? Why couldn't we have just stuck with the old method of judicial challenge? Yeah, again, it's another really great question because, the, w- as we mentioned, you know, there were some minor predecessor programs. Um, and when those predecessor programs were created, ex parte review and inter parties reexam was also created in the 1990s, um, they were always promised that these would not be alternatives to litigation. The point wasn't that this was going, that this was a way for people to have two bites at the apple, so to speak, in trying to invalidate a patent for someone who might be accused of infringement. Um, and the PTAB was also characterized as continuing in, in that tradition, in that vein, that, well, the PTAB would provide a fast and efficient way for someone to quickly re- uh, challenge what is an invalid patent and therefore re- eliminate an a improperly brought lawsuit. Um, 
And uh, so, for instance, the PTAB has to issue its decision within one year of, of, of instituting a hearing. Um, so there, it's time limited. So it's supposed to be very quick and fast, and it's supposed to be cheap. Um, but it's a, but it's a, it's a, it's an administrative hearing process. So it's, it's you know, someone, um, anyone in the world can file a petition uh, to challenge a patent is valid for any reason, by the way. I mean, um, they they don't have to, they don't have to be accused of of, of infringing. Uh, infringement, <clears throat> although most of the people who file petitions are people who are defendants in infringement actions. And, um, uh, and you know, you can challenge the patent as not being valid under the statutory requirements for having a patent um, in IPR, uh, except for one requirement, which is uh, uh, whether it's a patent eligible invention. Um, and, um, and if a hearing is instituted, you appear, be, you know, there's a select, there's a, there's a kind of mimics kind of the adversarial process of litigation. There, there, so both parties submit discovery and there's, it, and there's a three judge panel you appear before an AP judge panel, and then they eventually issue their, 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 their opinion. Um, and, and again, the, the justification for all this was that it was supposed to be, you know, quick and efficient. You have experts, APJs who are, have science backgrounds or technological backgrounds and are experts in patent law, and they would be able to quickly resolve this. Um, but that's not how it turned out. Um, but who's, who was giving the justifications for it? Was it, was it, I mean, obviously it was legislation, so somebody in Congress sponsored it, but was it, was there a particular sort of movement, either political or intellectual movement that, that pressed for, for this? Um, oftentimes, I mean, usually these ideas come from outside of Congress and I'm just kind of curious who was dissatisfied with the status quo. So, um, there had been created a, a very strong policy narrative that has continued, in fact, continues to this very day. Very many, a lot of people know it through the term the patent troll, um, which is a policy narrative and it's a, and it's a pejorative term um, that had, was created by people uh, who uh, get sued for patent infringement a lot. Um, it, it, it's mostly uh, Silicon Valley, the, the big tech companies, uh, Facebook, you know, um, uh, Google, you know, uh, Apple, and um, <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, you know, from their perspective, they you know they were they they felt like they were getting sued uh, for a lot of uh, inv invalid reasons, and um, and they 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 lobbied very strongly uh, for the creation of this alternative mechanism for uh, invalidating patents. So it's it's enacted in the the America Invents Act. This at least this, this particular process we're talking about. The case I keep alluding to is called Oil Services. Energy versus Greens Energy Group, and if I remember correctly, it was a case that arose from hydraulic fracking. Right, uh, a company had a had had a, a process or a method of hydraulic fracking that that gave rise to a lawsuit. So it began as a federal lawsuit challenging a patent related to the hydraulic fracking. But while the lawsuit was pending in federal court, um, I suppose it was Greens uh, Energy Group that 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 opened up the parallel track of this PTAB proceeding. And mm -hmm. so as sometimes happens in administrative law, you have these fascinating sort of dual track proceedings where they're litigating on one side in federal courts while somebody else is litigating effectively the same or overlapping issues in, in the PTAB. It came to the Supreme Court because uh, oil states energy lost before the PTAB, right? And they were challenging among other things, the constitutionality of this entire process. Now, yeah. just again, to step back, that's what gave rise to this, the, the conference that, that you uh, and, and my predecessor, Naomi Rao, organized when you were running the, the Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property. 
um, and, and Naomi was was running the new Center for the Study mm-hmm. of the Administrative State. Mm-hmm. And so you brought together, we brought together a group of scholars writing fascinating papers on the nature of intellectual property and the way it was adjudicated within agencies. Um, and I'd encourage our, our listeners to go back. It's in the, the, the past events page of the Grace Center's website, and I'm sure it's on the CPIPs uh, website as well, the papers and the conference videos and so on. Um, but why don't you describe for us the, the issue that was teed up for the court in, in the oil services case, um, the, this issue of public versus private rights? Yeah, so um, it, 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 you described it really well. And, and, and I'll just, uh, just want to say as a preliminary point, though, that you, 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 you noted how you know, the, the PTAB runs now is parallel to litigation. Um, and, and I want to emphasize again, that was what was promised it wouldn't be. <laughs> True, so yeah. it wasn't supposed to be a second bite at the apple for for defendants who are currently going to litigation and having the same arguments being adjudicated in an Article Three court about the validity of the patent, getting to get to re-adjudicate those exact same arguments at the PTAB, and yet that's exactly what's been happening. Um, and so that's does that happen a lot, by the way, or it did does. it happen a lot? Yeah, empiric- the empiric- some empirical studies have shown. Uh, significant massive overlap uh, between defendants in Article III court uh, suit for a patent infringement filing concurrently PTAB petitions to invalidate the patent. Okay. Uh, and, and in fact, that recently, uh, uh, Director Iancu, uh, you know, uh, supported some decisions by the PTAB that said, we will use as a, as a, as a factor for determining whether to grant a petition for review, uh, whether there's ongoing litigation and that litigation is very close to being resolved because there's because the whole justification for us is quick and easy determination initially and there's no reason for us to issue a decision and grant or grant a petition interest decision if there's about to be an article three court decision on this exact same patent and so he changed the rule on this recently and a lawsuit was just filed by google and apple and many other companies against him challenging this rule that he created that prohib- but essentially prohibited that he tried to bring an end to the two bites at an Apple pa- uh, a practice that had been occurring at the PTAB. Huh. So he's being now challenged by the very companies that push for the PTAB uh, that, uh, that, um, uh, where, uh, about this kind of fundamental due process concern. Unfortunately, this type of due process concern was not presented to the court in oil states because of the nature of the legal question that was presented. Yeah. So the the legal question that was actually specifically presented, it wasn't even an explicitly a question about public versus private rights. It was it was actually a Seventh Amendment jury question. Mm-hmm. Um, so the specific legal question that was presented in oil states is having my patent, which is a vested property right, adjudicated by an Article Three court, violates my Seventh Amendment right to ha- have it adjudicated by a jury trial. Um, <clears throat> And just, just by way of background for listeners, they're probably familiar with this. This is a perennial issue in administrative law all the way back to the pre-New Deal era. This basic question of what sorts of matters must be adjudicated by the courts and cannot be, in effect, delegated to um, uh, to administrative agencies or other non-judicial bodies for or non-Article Three of the Constitution judicial bodies for resolution. This was the issue in the famous case of Kroll v. Benson. And then in administrative law, we see it many, many years later in cases like uh, CFTC versus Shore, a commodities case, which actually your description of PTAB reminded me a lot of this, this idea of instead of having redundant or parallel proceedings, we need to send this all to the agency for quick, easy resolution. 
Um, yeah. And then in more recent cases, you know, involving say bankruptcy adjudication, the the Stern versus Marshall case. So this is this was just, in many ways, the latest iteration of that perennial question about when are you entitled to a judicial tribunal and even a jury to resolve resolve the question. Right, right, and um, and in this case, though, it was really, in a certain sense, unfortunate because there had been a lot of complaints about the PTAB. Uh, about due process concerns, and not just in terms of the par- running of the parallel tracks of litigation, um, there's confirmed, I mean, this is undisputed, there was what's called panel stacking, um, not under the current uh, director, but in, under the prior director of the patent office, where uh, uh, an initial panel of APJs would issue a decision, and that would be deemed to be the wrong decision, so they would order the panel, they would add more judges to the panel and order them to rehear the matter. Uh, that's, that's nice. You get, a, you get a second bite of the apple within the second bite of the apple. Exactly, exactly. And in one case, they, 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 they added, they, they did it three times. They ended up creating a seven APJ panel after the second group still came to the, quote, wrong decision. And they added a, a, as more judges to have to come to the right decision. That's wrong. Wrong in the eyes of the of who the director of the patent and trademark office or the the head APJ or, or who who is the one who kept stacking this up? Well, the, it, yeah. Well, the the director nominally under the statute has control over the PTAB, but he's largely delegated most of that to the chief judge of the PTAB. Yeah. The chief judge. So there are all of these uh, uh, vestiges of what makes it sound like a court system. And, I mean, it's adversarial, so it's a mixture of kind of. What we see often in the administrative state in these in these kind of adjudicated proceedings, where they they take vestiges of what is proper court practices in an Article Three court, because that makes it look valid, and but then it's, but it's not at the end of the day, and because you have things like can you imagine like appealing in a Second Circuit and the three judge panel says we come to a decision, and the chief judge of the Second Circuit says that's the wrong decision, and instead of doing an en banc hearing, we're just going to I'm going to add a point, two more judges to the panel to rehear the case. <laughs> right. Yeah, my, my initial reaction was, oh, that sounds a lot like en banc rehearing, but it's abso- absolutely not like that at all. It's, it's, right. it's much more sort of, uh, I don't know what the right word for it is, but I mean, it's, it, it, it seems, I mean, it, it's hard not to hear that and, and not just take it as total cynicism um, of, of what's going well, on here. That's, well, that's why it's, I mean, it's so shocking, but it occurs within this kind of, you know, isolated world of patent law and at the patent, U.S. Patent Trademark Office. So not a lot of people are, were aware of this. And these mm-hmm. were, and there were, you know, and there was practices of serial petitioning where people were, you know, filing 30, 40 petitions against the exact same patent with the exact same arguments just yeah. to impose greater costs on the patent owner and having to defend their patent. Um, and so, so there, were so, of, so, there so, were lots of due process concerns. And even there was even our, other cases arguing takings issues. And so this was kind of an unusual case. No one was really arguing the jury trial case, uh, the jury right case, except for this one. And this is the one the Supreme Court granted its heard on. So everyone was a little surprised by that. Now, you've, you've, you co-authored an amicus brief in a case. It was a brief of 27 law professors in support of the petitioner oil states. Uh, the brief is, like all Supreme Court briefs, is, is available on the, uh, on the SCOTUS blog website. And you and your colleagues, you focused on this issue of the nature of rights, of, of patents as rights in American law based on the common law origins and traced the history of how those were handled by courts going forward, arguing that ultimately uh, the, the revocation of a patent, even though patents were granted by this non-judicial body, their revocation, the revocation of those rights was the sort of thing that only courts could legitimately 
um, adjudicate, right? Yes. Um, so underlying or, uh, the, the question of whether you have a, a jury trial right is whether you actually have a legal right that falls within the scope of the protection of the Seventh Amendment. So immediately there was an implicit issue in even the nominal question presented on the, about the Seventh Amendment jury trial right is, is this actually a private, a private right as opposed to being a public right, a you know, privilege grant that is accorded the protections of the Seventh Amendment? Um, and it receives, it receives, you know, a proper adjudication in Article Three courts, which is where, which is where private rights are typically, um, well, have always been adjudicated, and 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 protected and secured under the separation of powers. And so, um, and so we re we recognized, I recognized, and other professors recognized that this was an important issue that was presented in this case, and so we wanted to address it because we knew that the court would have to address this question. And in fact, they ended up resolving the entire case on this question, right? The Seventh Amendment question is, uh, is resolved in one paragraph at the very end of the opinion, where they say, "Well, you don't know violation because it's a public right." <laughs> so, um, and our our brief kind of you know surveyed the actual history of the Supreme Court's decisions in the 19th century, where they accorded a, uh, uh, you know protection under the Constitution, under the Due Process Clause, the Takings Clause, as a private property right, the same types of protections that other private pro uh, vested property rights occur, because the issuance of a patent. Yes, it's examined by an agency and it's issued by the agency as a patent. But once it's issued, it becomes and is recognized as a vested private property right and is protected as such and requiring adjudication of it in Article Three court. Um, <clears throat> and by the way, if, I mean, it's not too unusual to even to have initial property rights granted. In fact, every property right, including property rights in land, start with an initial patent grant because this is the legal mechanism by which the government creates a legally enforceable right. And so all of us, even owners of, of, of a fee simple land, can tra ultimately trace our fee simple back to a patent issue. And in fact, the U.S. Patent Office actually served a role in issuing patents in land in the 19th century under the Homestead Act and other, and other federal pieces of legislation that authorized the creation of property rights in land, so, so, um, which, start, which were patent grants. Um, but all of these rights, once they're issued, you write in your land as well as your right in patent in the 19th century, were recognized as property rights. And in fact, it's in the takings cases where you get some of the strongest statements that property rights and patents are on the same status under the constitution as property rights in land or in, or in farms or in flocks and other types of things. Now we'll, we'll talk about the majority opinion in just a moment. Um, but what you just described, you know, comparing it to, or more than comparing uh, patents to real property, I mean, saying that they, they are both forms of property coming from the same sort of source of law um, in administrative law, we're also familiar with licenses, right, which are granted by the government. Um, licenses, uh, benefits. I mean, what separates a patent from those things which the government has much more leeway in rescinding? I mean, obviously, um, patents don't have everything in common with those things, but they, they, you don't have to squint to see a lot of sort of similarity between a patent and, say, a license or another sort of benefit that's granted by the federal government and is generally seen as what we call a public right. Why, why shouldn't we compare it with those? Yes, exactly. Uh, great question. Um, and, you know, and that's the superficial kind of similarities that served the basis for ultimately the Supreme Court's decision that patents are public rights. And this was the basis for the arguments, you know, by um, the, uh, the uh, prior administration that 
in fact, in their uh, the SGE's uh, brief, they they said, you know, patents are like Social Security benefits, and if we've issued a check to you in, 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 uh, improperly, we can claw it back um, because you don't it's not a vested property right. Um, but um, and um, <clears throat> but patents have long been recognized as not being rooted in these types of license grants because, in part, because of the core requirement in patent that it goes is issued only to a novel invention. It's a, you know, and to the inventor. Um, and in fact, this is one of the key points that was consistently highlighted by courts in the 19th century. I don't talk about this in the brief because of the page constraints, but that but I identified in my scholarship. Courts constantly in the United States highlighted this point as the point of difference between the property right that's being secured to an inventor through uh, their productive labors, their inventive labors. Uh, in fact, you see some of this kind of rhetoric about securing to, in inventors, the fruits of their inventive genius, as distinguished from these special privilege grants by the crown in England, uh, which issued to anyone for any reason, however the crown decided, whether it was legitimate industrial policy, which it was originally, or court favorites or other types of things. And so um, the fact that you had <clears throat> a constrained um, requirement in patent law under the statutes and the statutes were reflected the constitution uh, re the constitutional mandate that Congress was only authorized to secure an exclusive right to an inventor for their discoveries. So it's actually a requirement in the Constitution. Um, and so this was long recognized in the 19th century as what ultimately distinguishes patents as vested property rights from and therefore private rights from the types of public rights, types of special privilege grants, the licenses that are isu uh, issued to people or the other types of benefits. And you trace this out in, in, as you mentioned, your own scholarship. Um, the article I, I think you're probably referring to is your 2007 article in the Boston University Law Review. It was titled Patents as Constitutional Private Property, the Historical Protection of Patents Under the Takings Clause. Um, in addition to our listeners um, reading that, do you want to just briefly mention any other uh, articles that they ought to look up on this before we get to the majority opinion? Oh, yes. And in fact, I, I have a recent article in the Iowa Law Review called uh, Patents uh, common law rights and the mistaken classification. Oh no, statutes, common law rights, and the mistaken classification of patents as public rights in the Iowa Law Review that came out last year. Um, that details very directly this history of patents as private property rights and talks about, for instance, the Homestead Act and patents as mechanisms for creating legal, all legal rights and and why identifying something as merely being statutory, which was the primary hook for both Justice Thomas's Matinian and Oil States and and, and many others. Um, you know, this is who distinguished this kind of statutory grant from the kind of classic, quote, common law rights, unquote, um, that that was the, you know, the basis for distinguishing a privilege versus a private property right, that that's actually a mistaken distinction, that, that that's a heuristic that is used, but it's not the sole basis, actually, for distinguishing between these types of rights. So, okay, so so your article is 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 a response to the Supreme Court's decision in oil states. So what did the, what did the court ultimately decide? As you mentioned, it was a majority opinion by Justice Thomas. We'll get back to that fact in maybe in a few moments because it's very interesting to me. Um, but what why did the court um, reject uh, the, the arguments that, that you made? Obviously, uh, it was a it was a, a, a calumny that, that that the court rejected your arguments and at a travesty of justice and so on. But what's what was the court's uh, reasons uh, for for disagreeing with you? Well, I was at least, you know, mollified a little bit by Justice Gorsuch's dissent, where he did embrace these, these arguments. But, um, right. 
but um, but you know, there the the after recounting the kind of the procedural posture of the case and the facts of the case, there's the the core argument by Justice Thomas is it, not very it's not very lengthy or substantive. It is this kind of key distinction that he makes. He says, well. Patents are creatures of statute. This is his language. They are statutory rights um, created by Congress, which is, a, which is of course, the, a political body. Um, these are, therefore, not classic, quote, common law rights, unquote, that are, you know, created by common law courts and enforced by courts uh, historically, which we recognize as private property rights, or, as, you know, in the, in the great kind of classic trilogy of the rights of life, liberty, and property. And therefore, these are special privileges. And he compares them to other types of statutory grants. He says this is like a you know, a franchise and a, monop- a, a, a franchise monopoly in a bridge, um, <clears throat> or in, a, or you know, in a, in a highway or another type of you know telecommunications grant, and um, <clears throat> and he says that, therefore um, this has all the trappings of of a of a public right of a special privilege. And here, public right and special privilege are essentially synonyms. Um, and uh, and and the classic adage, "What the government giveth, the government can take it away," applies. You know, you don't have a special property right in a bridge monopoly that's granted to you by by the government uh, on the same terms that a farm farmer has a property right in their farm that they've been laboring on in, in, in farming for years. Yeah, as Justice Thomas's majority opinion frames up this this issue of public and private rights, I mean, he concedes at the outset that it's, there isn't always a bright line between the two categories. He quotes the Northern Pipeline case: "This court has not definitively explained." the distinction between public and private rights. But then he goes in the next turn, he makes clear he doesn't think this is a hard case at all in the context of patents. The patents he sees as an easy case. He writes, inter partes review falls squarely within the public rights doctrine. Um, A little further down, the court has long recognized the grant of a patent is a matter involving public rights. That's a, a quote from an 1899 case. And it really does focus on the grant of the patent, ab initio, the grant of a patent involves a matter arising between the government and others. The upshot of the court's opinion really seems to be that the mere, the, just the, the plain fact that this, the patent is created by or recognized by the federal government in the first instance means that it can be revoked without this judicial process. Am I overstating it? No, no, I think you characterized and properly quoted the exact, his exact argument. Um, uh, two quick responses. One is that, you know, he acknowledges the kind of the fuzziness in the doctrine because the doctrine has evolved over the years and um, under the under more recent modern precedents, the distinction between public and private right has um, kind of been construed in more functionalist um, uh, terms with the creation of multi-factor tests, you know, that we typically see from, from court decisions. And this is distinguished from the kind of the more formal distinction, the formalistic distinction uh, that you see in kind of classic, more classic cases. And uh, Justice Thomas applies in his reasoning kind of the more classic kind of formalistic distinction. He just kind of has to acknowledge that there's these kind of functionalist cases that don't make much sense. <laughs> and uh, um, But then to get to his the kind of the substance of his argument about that, oh, well, it is a grant from an agency. The agency is a public agency. It's a political agency like Congress, created by Congress. And so what Congress could not have created this at all. And so this is on the same status as any other grant, special grant from, from the government. Um, yeah, um, and uh, to, uh, on the substance of that, it's really, uh, there's two important things. So uh, Richard Epstein has written this awesome little short essay, which shows that like 
every case that, that Justice Thomas cited to and quoted from from the 19th century is actually misquoted. That mm -hmm. there's actually important clauses <laughs> left out, and you know where there's ellipses. It contains language that actually contradicts the the uh, uh, the case, the older case, the precedent contains language that contradicts the punk, the purpose for which um, Justice Thomas is citing or quoting it in in the opinion, because yes, it's never been disputed that the process of the prosecution of a patent, while you're in that process, you don't have a a right, but once the patent issued and was stamped <laughs> with you know the approval of of uh, of the commissioner of patents. It became a vested property right. In fact, this is the same exact status as the as the property rights in land that issued under the Homestead Act. Um, and this is what I talk about in my Iowa Law Review article. So, in, so in the Homestead Act, you, you, you know, first of all, you it had all these limitations on what you could do with the land. You couldn't because they didn't want people engaging in arbitrage and 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 um, and, and um, you know and investment purposes. They wanted people to be on the land and to use the land productively. So you had to actually live on the land and you had to use it for five years. And you didn't get a vested property right until after five years. And you had to submit affidavits from two witnesses that confirmed it. And the statute, and the statute says, and then a patent shall issue <laughs> if you can prove that you've used. So during that period of time, you didn't have a vested property right under the Homestead Act. And, and, you know, and, and if you violated the conditions or the requirements for you getting the property right the fee simple that was ultimately issued to you, it wouldn't be issued to you. But once it issued to you, once you submitted the affidavit, you got your fee simple. You got your property right in the land. It was a vested property right. And, and it's beyond a doubt that the, that the courts in the 19th century applied the exact same principles to the patent system. In fact, there's a very explicit case, McCormick, which, uh, which Justice Thomas kind of deals with in a very kind of offhand way, but that it directly contradicts oil state. In the McCormick case, the court explicitly says, once the patent has been issued, it becomes a vested right, and the patent office has no more interest in it anymore. And if there's any adjudication or 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 or, or official official action taken with respect to the patent, it has to be done through an Article Three court. Um, that this raises sort of a metaphysical question, um, and maybe it doesn't make a difference for the case, but maybe it does. Uh, you're as. What's the right way to understand the issuance of a patent? Does it create the right or does it confirm the existence of a right? So, yeah, so this is, this is a kind of a great metaphysical question in patent policy, right? Um, in fact, the, you know, the clause in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, uh, Clause 8, actually uses the word securing. Um, ah, yeah, it does. You're right. <laughs> now there, but so the language of the actual Constitution would suggest that there is a pre-existing inchoate right that you have through your act of invention that then is secured to you by the issuance of the patent. Unfortunately, Supreme Court has muddied the waters, as the Supreme Court is, it does in every area of law, um, in, uh, in, a, uh, in, in a case called Wheaton v. Peters, which is a copyright case, but nonetheless involved this kind of question of the status of copyrights. They said, oh, there is no pre-existing right under the Constitution. The Constitution, you know, the right exists only through legislation and, 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 and following the requirements of the legislation. Um, but that's consistent still with the idea that you can have an inchoate right that just is not legally enforceable and is not recognized by the government until it's issued under the conditions of which the, is required for the statute. And so um, uh, I, I think the, the same framework is applied again to land. Um, in fact, you see the exact same arguments in land. And this is something I talk about in even an older article, 2007, that came out at the same time as the one you already referred to called Who Cares What Thomas Jefferson Thought About Patents, where I actually talk about how and identified uh, in the 19th century how courts use this language of inchoate right and coate right um, 
which they took from common law cases involving land where they would say, well, if you possessed property and labored on it, that created an inchoate right, a moral claim to it, that you would then perfect and, and turn into a coate right by receiving title in it through a patent. Um, and then it became a legally enforceable right. And they applied the exact same framework to patents. They said the act of invention created an inchoate right, um, a moral claim, that if you could prove the basis of your, of your invention per the requirements of the statute, then it, you perfected it through the issuance of a patent as a legally enforceable title in your, in your interest. And they use that language. By the way, I wrote these articles. In fact, the other one you referred to as well, because historical arguments abound in patent law. And people are constantly saying, especially academics, oh, patents have never been protected as property rights. They've always been viewed as privileges. They would quote Jefferson on this, and that would be the extent of it, which is, uh, and I got really interested in this question. So I actually went back and read all the 19th century patent cases. There's about 1,500 of them in the Federal Cases Reporter. So this is, became the basis of my discovering all of this, this, these court cases uh, about where the courts applied the Constitution to patents to protect them under the Takings Clause and Due Process Clause. and and, and where they use this property framework to understand patents. And that's became the basis of a lot of my, of my scholarship. Now, now, Justice Thomas and the majority taking the, the materials at hand that were in, in the briefs and, and cited in the briefs ruled the other way. As you mentioned, Justice Gorsuch uh, dissents with Chief mm-hmm. Justice Roberts. They really, really have no difficulty in seeing a difference between the executive branch's role in granting a patent and the, 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 the court's role in, in, in the revocation of a patent um, based on the, the, the fact that once the right becomes vested, it really falls outside the purview of, of executive power. Justice Thomas writing the majority opinion has always just fascinated me because normally when we think of sort of Supreme Court critics of, of administrative governance, Justice Thomas has really been at the forefront of it for a decade now. In fact, if I remember correctly, the day that oil states was decided, I think was the day that Justice Thomas keynoted a Gray Center event um, when we renamed the program after his after his friend Ambassador Gray, and so Justice Thomas writing the majority opinion was fascinating to me. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, he he he's often come to question the doctrine of of administrative cases he previously accepted on matters of deference and so on. And I'll be curious as the scholarship further develops in the aftermath of this case whether there's any prospects for Justice Thomas, maybe recalibrating his his view in part or even in whole, who knows. But again, for Justice Thomas, it was pretty straightforward and cut and dry once he had located this particular right as a public right, not a private right. He um, he really was not, uh, he really saw no difficulty in, in keeping this within the purview of the, of the executive branch. In that respect, it reminds me of, of, of cases from years earlier, Goldberg versus Kelly, right? The welfare cases where, um, you know, where, where Justice Brennan and others were very keen to see more process, more of a, almost a, a quasi-judicial process followed by judicial review to prevent revocation of welfare benefits. Those cases, that case was, you know, immediately criticized by especially conservatives who thought that the concept of property was being stretched to include welfare benefits. Obviously, it was trimmed back very quickly in the the case of Matthews versus uh, Eldridge involving Social Security disability. But for all of conservatives, especially criticisms of administrative overreach, 
right? There was always the concern that, you know, you don't want the pendulum to swing too far the other way. You don't want the courts to judicialize what are purely executive processes and then layer on top of that even more judicial review in addition. And so I, I wonder how much of that background of Goldberg versus Kelly sort of informed um, at least Justice Thomas's view of the case, but this is just idle speculation. Um, let me just, let's, let's get on to a couple of closing points. First of all, um, what's happened since this case? How has the oil state's uh, decision affected PTAB and the industries whose patents are at stake in, in PTAB? That's a great question, and um, and it really struck and it really strikes at the kind of the core, the importance of this case, um, because um, the you know the issue of whether patents are public or private rights and the and the ongoing processes of the PTAB, um, you know, really strike at this the, the ongoing legitimacy of our patent system as securing effective and reliable property rights and new innovation, which have been kind of a a key part, not the only part, but a key part of, of, of what has been a found, the foundation that has driven our innovation economy. Um, and unfortunately, because of the oil states decision, right, this has thrown patents squarely into all of the, uh, I- into the domain of administrative law um, in a way that patents never have been before. So um, the patent system is largely run in tandem to the administrative state. It's been largely segregated off from the administrative state in, in many ways because it was respected as just securing property rights. In fact, this is in the statute. It's, it, these are property rights. Um, and so, uh, and now it's very much part of the administrative state. And so you have your Chevron doctrine has been applied to the PTAB and, you know, and you've got these, all of these now PTAB cases, even going to the U.S. Supreme Court on all of these questions of interpretation and discretionary powers of the, of the PTAB, cases of Quozo and Thrive and now SAS Institute, which read like any other administrative state case involving like fine, you know, fine-tuned statutory analysis and, uh, uh, and, 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 and fine-tuned analysis of the, of the wording of the regulations that have been enacted by the, at the PTAB, the adjudication of the processes and the discretionary powers that are being issued. And this is not good because this is, de- as I mentioned, this is destabilized kind of, you know, the, the, the function of these. So you can imagine putting our fee simples through these kind of massive discretionary process. We do. We do, right, through the EPA and through, and through the other types of regulatory agencies. And, and it's destabilized these rights. And it, it, the same thing now has happened to patents. And they've been so really uh, destabilized and undermined. Um, and, uh, and the PTAB has been empowered through the oil states decision, through the designation of patents as public rights. And so you, know, you, the, you have a significant invalidation rates, uh, really unusually high. You know, uh, in the covered business method program for a while was 100%. Hmm. Uh, I can imagine an agency, well, there, there, was, there was a judge, 100% rule in the, in the Supreme Court said, that's not, not valid, right? But because... In oil states, the question was presented in the context of the Seventh Amendment, right? They couldn't, they couldn't hear that those, those issues, which were due process issues, right? Um, and takings issues weren't, weren't before the court. And the court has recognized these issues. In fact, I have to mention, it's not like the court doesn't know about these issues. Explicitly referred to some of these problems as shenanigans <laughs> in Quozo. It used that term, the shenanigans occurring at the PTAP. Um, and yet everyone just now kind of shrugs about the shenanigans because... Well, these are public rights, and the PTAB can adjudicate them through these discretionary processes. And so, um, so uh, this is uh, very problematic. Um, and uh, and uh, the, and 
the decision in, in, in oil states has been extended by courts. Um, so despite the fact that Justice Thomas says at the very end of oil states, we're not deciding any takings or due process issues. Um, and uh, courts have relied on oil states uh, more recently, for instance, in the Christie, uh, Christie case, uh, to say patents are not protected under the, under the takings clause, um, that, that, you know, that regulatory or direct takings of patents are not a taking under the takings clause, and citing oil states for that proposition um, because they're public right. So, um, <clears throat> in, in that respect, it almost, going back and rereading the case, it reminded me of the Supreme Court decisions regarding regulatory takings, right? Speaking of Richard Epstein, um, because after the first, if I remember correctly, after the first couple of decisions on regulatory takings, the court really had to circle back and grapple with the fact that that prop, real property rights in general are based on this background of pre-existing laws. And so you get this sort of circularity problem where if the pre-existing laws include the capacity for regulation, um, let alone the capacity for eminent domain, well, then how, then, then how vested are your, your property rights? And I can't remember the exact phrase. I think Justice Kennedy at one point referred to something like reasonable investment-backed expectations or something like that to try to create some prudential break on the circularity of the doctrine. But that really was after the, if I remember correctly, after the second or third iteration of, of regulatory takings. This is your, your subject, not mine, so I might be totally misremembering it. I haven't thought about these things in a long time. But I definitely did think of them reading this case. And the other thing this case reminds me of, in a way, you mentioned the EPA a moment ago. You think back to Massachusetts versus EPA, a landmark decision in which the Supreme Court says, um, of course, greenhouse gases can be the subject of EPA regulation of the Clean Air Act. They fit, they fit the statutory definition for a pollutant and all these other prudential arguments for reading the statute another way just can't prevail over the meaning of the statute. Of course, as soon as the ink was dry on that opinion, the practical difficulties of administering a greenhouse gas program became self-evident. The EPA had to grapple with them in many ways. It all culminates in a case called Utility Air Regulatory Group versus EPA, where the same Supreme Court, albeit in a different um, alignment of justices, says, well, yes, we said that the EPA can regulate greenhouse gases. We didn't mean that greenhouse gases should be the subject of every EPA regulatory program. And there's a difference between mobile sources and stationary sources. And the EPA's administration of it here is very unreasonable. It was very clear what was happening, though, was that the court... In the, given the sort of the experience of the intervening decade, it was much more palpable the problems of applying the Clean Air Act to sort of categorically to greenhouse gas emissions. And so I really wonder, as the issues you just identified continue to become more palpable, more concrete, I do wonder if the court's going to have to return to this issue and trim, its, trim the sales of this a little bit or maybe even reconsider oil states altogether. Yeah, that's a, that's a great hope. Hope springs. <laughs> um, also, you know, the spirit, and of course, the spirit of Richard Epstein is behind any any discussion of the of the administrative state and of, of course, yeah, uh, uh, two of us. But um, uh, I, I'm more I'm more pessimistic and skeptical. Um, in fact, um, uh, you know, it, it, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, Ju- Justice Thomas in other decisions has has consistently shown um, a, a skepticism about patents as property rights. Um, you know, that, that, that viewing these as kind of regulatory entitlements or monopoly grants. Um, and so there's kind of a patent exceptionalism uh, 
that has been developed by him in his mind that distinguishes patents as from other types of property rights. And in a certain sense, this is this is why we were getting these these decisions because he shares the same skepticism now and the same view of, of, of patents as does Justice Breyer. Uh, we normally don't see Justice Thomas and Justice Breyer on the same issues on, uh, when it especially comes to the administrative state questions of agencies. Um, and uh, and also Justice uh, Thomas, you know, recently has indicated that he's very skeptical that even due process provisions and takings provisions apply. So a lot of people saw the, that that statement at the end of oil states where he said, well, we're not talking about due process for takings at all. They saw that as a ray of hope. And I did too. I said, well, maybe, yeah, they're kind of, they're narrowly, they're handing down a very narrow decision that can be, that can be narrowed with takings cases and due process cases down the road. But in a recent copyright case, Alan D. Cooper involving the question of whether uh, states could, were, could be immune from copyright infringement, uh, Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence where he actually says, I think it's an open question whether pat or copyrights are protected under the due process clause, which was a really surprising statement by him because there's massive amounts of, of, of case law on this, uh, just like in patents, that shows that they are protected under the due process clause. Um, and so that, that, that con recent concurrence, which just was, you know, hand, that decision was just handed down last March, um, really kind of put that last paragraph at, in oil states kind of in a new light, right? And it shows actually him saying, well, we're not deciding this issue, but you know, I have a my I have a view of this issue, and the view is issues is that I, I'll come to the same decision as I came to oil states when this question, when these questions are presented. Um, so uh, I, I'm I'm more pessimistic, unfortunately, about what might happen here, um, and it's really unfortunate because it actually has been a his a lot of historians and economists and, and and professors have recognized that a key feature of what has made the U.S. patent system so successful has been it that it's been a property rights system, not a not a monopoly grant system, not a system of just mere economic regulation that a lot of other countries have uh, took. This was a key part of what's driven the U.S. innovation economy. Um, and this is exactly what we're now undermining through the PTAB and through decisions like oil states. Well, it's a fascinating subject as a, as a layman, just observing all of this. Um, I have to admit, your closing note sort of terrifies me a bit. Um, I can't imagine what it's like now for startup companies and others. I mean, so often one of the first questions in, in getting venture capital is, um, what's the status of your intellectual property? And I suppose that complicates things a lot for startups um, mm -hmm. um, to the benefit of incumbents, and which is, is never a good thing. Um, but this has been a fascinating subject. It's been a real treat for me to get to go back and reacquaint myself with the case and with your arguments in the case mm -hmm. and with the old um, Gray Center CPIP event. Um, maybe in the future we'll have another opportunity to revisit it again. But in the meantime, Adam Mossoff, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. It was it was it was a real pleasure to re, you know to go back over our fantastic conference that we did and and uh, and to talk about this issue again it's, uh, and and kind of discuss it again in light of the development over the past year or two. So thank you. Of course, and thanks as always to our audience for joining us today. Please join us for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious. Mm -hmm.